Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. Later in the show, Reina Bentia will tell us about Tuya Farm, and we'll chat with Dior Greenwood, a Navajo multidisciplinary artist, skateboard instructress, and youth advocate. But right now, guest host Sabrina Avila talks with Mary Kim Titla, Executive Director of United National Indian Tribal Youth. Today we have Mary Kim Titla, the Executive Director of United National Indian Tribal Youth Incorporated, also known as UNITY, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help build a strong, unified, and self-reliant Native American through greater youth involvement. Welcome to our show, Mary Kim. Hello, Douglas Ed. It's great to join all of you today. Great. So can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe, born and raised on the San Carlos Apache reservation. I am currently serving as the executive director for Unity. And Unity is near and dear to my heart. I actually started with Unity uh, as a young person and uh, found out way back when um, that Unity had this uh, amazing ability to empower and move Native youth in a way that um, uh, other groups uh, weren't able to. So can you tell us about the mission of Unity and why is it important? Well, thank you for asking that. And I think that's an important question because whenever uh, someone starts up an organization, um, knowing the history is is so significant. And in this case, J.R. Cook, who is a former executive director and founder of Unity, um, gathered youth, sort of like a focus group, uh, and asked them to, first of all, whether creating this national organization would be a good thing, and two, if so, would they help him uh, develop a mission statement. And this group of Native youth at the time, this is going back to 1976, um, helped to develop the the mission statement. And um, it is a very meaningful mission statement. It's, uh, and I'll just uh, read it. It's, Unity's mission is to foster the spiritual, mental, physical, and social development of American Indian, Native Hawaiian, and Alaska Native youth. And to help build a strong, unified, and self-reliant Native America through greater youth involvement. And I think that speaks to the overall well-being of Native people. You have your four core areas uh, of well-being, spiritual, mental, physical, and social, and that's huge. Um, It's all about having a balanced life, and that's what Unity's mission is all about, is making sure that our Native youth are are moving forward in in a good way and that all of their needs are being addressed. So that's what we strive for when we develop youth programs. It's always with the mission in mind. So is Unity just in Arizona, or is it nationwide? Absolutely. It is a national organization, and we do have uh, a youth council network, and this is the heart of Unity. There's there's other youth programs, but uh, the youth program network uh, has, Actually, the Youth Council Network has been around since the 90s, and more than 300 youth councils are affiliated in 36 states. So it's, um, you know, very uh, broad. We break down the, the country into 10 regions, and the, the National Unity Council is uh, very sophisticated. They have uh, an elected body. Uh, the 10 regional representatives, as well as co-presidents, a male and female. And so they hold elections every year. They have their own constitution and bylaws. And um, this is one way to make sure that all regions of the U.S. are involved and and have a way to get plugged in to the network. So we encourage um, youth council development, whether it's on tribal lands, or even in urban uh, areas. We have many uh, school districts who are involved, including um, school districts right here in uh, the Phoenix area. So Mesa Unified, the Phoenix Unified School Districts both have active youth councils. And uh, in fact, Arizona has um, 
among the most active of youth councils in the country. So can you tell us a little bit more about how unity empowers the Native American youth? Well, there's different ways. Um, As I mentioned, the National Unity Council is one way. And if youth have, um, you know, membership in a youth council, then they can get plugged in and and get involved in um, community service. And it's very uh, much hands-on in terms of leadership development. So just a simple asking a young person to to join a meeting and to give input or to serve in a certain capacity, that's leadership development. And when you come to a training or to a youth conference sponsored by Unity, it's not a surprise if youth are just asked out of the blue to introduce somebody or to take a a role. Um, And again, that's leadership development. We have other programs besides the National Unity Council, including the Earth Ambassador Program. If students are interested or have a passion in regards to environmental stewardship, they can um, you know, find a place there to be involved. We also have the Healing Initiative, which is uh, addressing uh, juvenile justice and safety in Indian country and youth Again, um, there's a peer group of 10 youth from around the country who are actively engaged in um, the Healing Indigenous Lives Initiative. We also have um, what we call Unity News, and um, due to my background in journalism, this is something new that uh, we introduced uh, several years ago, where youth can be involved in communications camps, and they Uh, produce videos that showcase, um, you know, either their youth council projects or their own passions. Uh, It could be an issue related to such topics as missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, It it could be land issues. It could be water issues. Um, But the Unity News Communications Camp allows youth to, you know, tell their stories. And uh, we find partners, Arizona State University, who has come in and helped us with that, the Cronkite School. So there's lots of ways for young people to get involved. If they're not involved in the youth council, they can become individual members and get plugged in as individual members. Um, So for those of us who are not aware, can you talk a little bit more about youth councils and what they do? We have a youth council toolkit, so I want to mention that right off the bat so I don't forget. It's on our website unityinc.org, that's U-N-I-T-Y-I-N-C.org. And the toolkit will give you a step-by-step plan to develop a youth council. We do encourage all tribal nations, um, Native American communities, um, school districts that have a high Native American population to consider creating a youth council. This is um, an extracurricular activity and Research shows that students who get involved in extracurricular activities tend to do well in life. Um, This is just another avenue for young people to, um, you know, find their place, find their voice, um, find a way to get involved and give back to their communities and address issues. Our young people are amazing. And um, a youth council is one way to do that. It's, again, uh, there's a process, so the action plan um, helps to um, give a a step-by-step plan, including the building of a constitution and bylaws to um, develop a resolution so that the youth council can be recognized by an umbrella organization, the election of officers, and um, the selection of advisors, because we know that it takes Um, caring adults to work together with our youth to really, um, you know, get things going and and make sure that um, the youth needs are uh, being addressed. So do you see youth being more self-confident and accepting these leadership roles? Well, you know, even going back to my generation, um, youth were and have always been involved and, and active and Youth are very passionate about issues. Um, They really do care what's going on in their communities. They do care about what's happening uh, to them as young people. And so um, any level of government, whether it's um, 
state, county, federal, or even the tribal level, um, youth are, are engaged. They do have opinions. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to uh, acknowledge um, their voice and to value what they have to say because, um, you know, the future is dependent upon um, the leadership development of our uh, Native youth. So I'm so glad. And yes, I've been involved as executive director for eight years. But prior to that, um, I was a youth council advisor myself. And and as I mentioned, I've been involved with Unity um, as a young person. So I've seen um, the involvement of leadership over those uh, years and generations. And um, yes, they, we're seeing more and more activity. Um, I will talk to, you know, the, the demographics. Um, in the past, we, we saw a lot of um, uh, male involvement, but now uh, we're seeing more females being involved. Um, so that's something that has evolved. Um, we do invite youth between the ages of 14 and 24, so high school and college age. Uh, a majority of them are around the 16 and 17 um, year old age span. Um, so we are uh, seeing also more uh, urban youth involved. In the past, it was more uh, from the you know tribal land base, but more urban Native youth are getting involved. So we're, we're seeing some changes over the years, but our, again, our youth have, um, have always been great about stepping up and assuming leadership roles. Nice. That's great to have all of that inclusion with the urban and the reservation natives. Um, so I know that you mentioned that you work with other youth groups. So can you talk a little bit more about those and the leaders across the country that you also work with? We do engage in partnerships, and that's very important to Unity. We have done um, some work with like um, the Billy Mills Running Strong for Indian Youth, organization. We have partnered with Urban Indian Health, and we have also partnered with uh, ACES, which is American Indian Science and Engineering Society. Um, we have partnered with uh, CNA, the Center for Native American Youth. We welcome that. And in fact, we have going back even to when I was involved, being involved with groups like the National Indian Education Association and the National Congress of American Indians. It's important uh, to build these types of relationships because honestly, we're all on the same team. You know, we want the same things, which is to uplift our youth, to empower them, and um, to make sure that their needs are addressed and uh, they feel good about their future. So I know that you mentioned that Unity has conferences. Um, do you have annual conferences, mid-year conferences, and who can attend? We actually offer year-round programming, so there's always something for uh, everyone, and all you have to do is look on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, so you can find us there. You can also go to our website, unityinc.org and uh, find out what we're up to. But yes, we do offer two signature events. Uh, one is the mid-year conference. The mid-year is normally held in Arizona. We also have a national conference, and that one is going to be in Minneapolis this year. It is going to be, uh, and both of them, in fact, are going to be in-person events. Uh, like other groups, we've gone virtual um, the last two years, but this past summer, we went back to in-person, and um, it turned out to be a great event. We had about 750 youth there, and uh, that was really exciting. Of course, we conduct our events in a safe manner, applying all CDC, you know, state and federal guidelines. And uh, we just want to make sure that everything is, you know, safe for, for youth to gather. Um, so we do keep an eye on uh, what, what's developing um, as far as COVID goes. Uh, but again, year-round programming is, is something that we offer. We're going to have um, more virtual events this, this year. We've had them in the past. Uh, we're going to have some um, spring meetups uh, virtual. So I hope um, if there's interest out there that people will be checking us out on our social media platforms or on the website. So if someone wants to get involved with Unity, where can they go to learn more about it? And how can they contact you? Um, you can go to the website. Again, I'll 
mention it, unityinc.org, U-N-I-T-Y-I-N-C.org. And um, we are based in Mesa. Uh, you can always also stop by the office. Um, there's always someone there who can give you information about getting involved. Uh, we're also looking uh, for volunteers. Volunteers um, are so helpful. We have a small staff, a small but mighty staff. We, we have a great team, and um, they make things happen. But we are also in need of adult volunteers. Uh, I should mention that we also have um, programming for adults. Um, we do know that adults who work with youth need support, and so we offer training um, during our mid-year national conferences specifically for adults. Um, Pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, we had almost 500 adults attend our national conference, and they were involved in trainings side-by-side um, -side with the youth. All right. Thank you so much, Mary Kim, for taking time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. And I just want to give a shout out to all those who are working with young people. You are amazing. Keep up the great work. Thank you again. Coming up next, we'll talk with Raina Bentia. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix, and in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm guest host Sabrina Avila. On the phone with me is Reina Bentia, owner of Tuya Farm. Welcome to our show, Reina. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you with us. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a, a member of the Zuni tribe here in New Mexico, and I am currently on my sixth season of farming with the intention of being able to provide more produce um, education and this general education on agriculture to local community and also to indigenous tribes here in the Southwest. So how did you get involved in agriculture and why did you start to your farm? My path to agriculture started when I was in high school. There was a program that I participated where we were working with our tribal members here in the Albuquerque region. Uh, we, we did some greenhouse work and we also went to farmers markets. And so that kind of started when I was in high school and I wanted to kind of be able to continue working outside. So I pursued at the beginning a degree in environmental science. Um, but I feel like my passion was really in agriculture and being able to continue our agricultural practices, um, especially in the Zuni area. I was like seeing a lot of people in my community that were no longer farming and uh, fast forward to a few years ago, I was able to be part in a farmer training training program here in Albuquerque. So that's kind of what reignited my um, interest in agriculture and what it meant to me and for my community. And so, yeah, I was able to redirect my career path to agriculture, and it's been a really fun learning experience. Can you talk to us about your farming methods? Well, currently I have a few different farming methods that I try to um, 
implement on my farm. Uh, the first one is um, mostly the typical market farming um, things that you would typically see, like at a produce section, um, lettuce, you know, radish, roots, uh, other types of roots. So um, tomatoes, squash, you know, just like the staples that you would find at the grocery store, but also um, I have indigenous crops that I also like to grow. Um, that includes like our heirloom beans and chili, corn, squash, um, things like that, that are grown here in the Southwest. And also just being able to provide um, habitat for um, other insects and bugs and birds. So I like to grow um, also a lot of flowers and herbs. Do you use any traditional methods of farming and irrigation? Um, for the farm that I am at right now, uh, we practice uh, flood farming. So that's one of the biggest irrigation methods here along the Rio Grande um, is using the water that's diverted from the river um, into different farm areas. So we have a sequia on the right. Um, and we get to flood. Uh, usually once a month we get um, time to water um, some of our flood fields. Um, but I also like to use drip irrigation, which is also um, more water saving method here that we use well water for. And also um, hopefully if it rains, that's also another form of irrigation. Can you tell us how do you water your crops in an arid climate? Well, I mentioned that we use drip tape system, which um, really is concentrating that um, the irrigation to the plants, and it only uh, irrigates where the plants are, so we don't really have to waste water. Um, but also flood irrigation is also important um, because we get to really um, soak the land and it helps to infiltrate the water and kind of rehydrate the water table and kind of flow, flow that the water that flows into the flood areas gets to be contained in those areas for a lot longer period of time and also being able to irrigate um, uh, what I practice on the farm also is waffle garden. Uh, it's a type of agriculture that really concentrates the water that is available to the plants uh, for longer periods of time. Can you talk to us about seed saving and why is this important? I feel like seed saving has kind of been inherent part of our indigenous agricultural systems for for as long as we've been around and being able to save certain seeds that are really a historical part of like our, our communities. I think that's one of the reasons that I feel like farming is important um, being able to pass down the seeds that we've been growing for thousands of years. Um, that's kind of where I feel like my passion is in agriculture, is being able to carry those seeds for future generations. And the seeds that I have been growing here in the Southwest are particularly um, resilient to this area. So, um, it's important because due to climate change, um, <clears throat> you know, lack of water here in this area, um, being able to cultivate and uh, share those seeds is going to be important for like ongoing um, climate change. And um, yeah, I feel like the seeds that we have as Indigenous communities, they have stories and they have so much um, knowledge to share with all of us. So um, 
right now a lot of um, seed companies um, they they kind of are in a shortage right now so during the pandemic we've seen a lot of shortages in the food supply chain and also in the seed supplies and just basically everywhere um, we're seeing like a lot of shortages so being able to save your seeds from one season to the next um, <clears throat> kind of ensures that you have a supply that you can have on hand and that you don't have to really rely on outside um, sources to be able to grow your food I think that's really important right now all right and what are your thoughts about cooking and processing of foods um, this is, this is kind of the part where I feel like I'm still learning a lot about, um, what it means to process and save certain foods. And, um, right now I feel like I'm still in the beginning stages of learning all these things because we, you know, we used to be self-reliant in our communities and our families to be able to grow all the food and store it and make it last for like the whole winter, spring season um, and, and throughout the year too. So I feel like I'm still learning and I'm really enjoying the process of learning how to ferment foods and pickle foods and dehydrate foods. So yeah, it's it's been fun to learn and experiment and and being able to do that as a farmer, like um, sometimes uh, I have so much produce that I can't really um, eat all of the tomatoes that come out all at once. So being able to learn how to like store food, it's been, it's been really important. And I'm hoping to kind of be able to share more of those process with other people this year. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you try to educate the community about farming and healthy foods? I've been able to do uh, a number of workshops on the farm, uh, but this was, you know, prior to pandemic. So I was able to uh, do more waffle garden workshops. So being able to teach the community about um, how to make the waffle gardens and what to plant in them. Hopefully um, this season, I, I'm kind of um, trying to come up with a way to do it in a safe way um, in person this year. And if I'm not able to, I'm trying to figure out a way to um, make videos or uh, do more processes like that where um, people feel safe, but still can um, be in a good learning environment. Um, sometimes we have school groups that, um, make, um, visits to the farm and, um, I started, um, trying to experiment with doing online cooking classes using the produce that, um, I've grown and other local farmers have grown. So that's kind of some things that I'm, um, planning on continuing and, uh, just trying to engage more with this year with different um, projects that I'm trying to do. So hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to do a little more outreach this year. So can you tell us what is a CSA and is this the way you distribute your vegetables or can people purchase specific items directly from you? So CSA um, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And this concept is, um, I think, what I've been wanting to try to cultivate more. Um, so what happens is kind of at the beginning of the season before uh, we even start planting and uh, having food ready, we have people that are able to sign up and pay a certain price to be a member and each person uh, contributes a certain amount of money and then they get produce throughout the season or however long that the farmers want to have their CSA go till. So uh, they get produce 
typically every week. It depends on how you structure your CSA, but uh, you pay kind of pay up front, and then you get produce throughout the season, and then you get to really establish a relationship um, with your um, CSA members and kind of be able to re you rely basically on your members to kind of help pay for the farm operations and stuff. So um, in the past, I've been part of um, some larger CSAs and I've also done a small CSA. So it's a, it's a little different way of selling produce, but I think that's one of the ways that some farmers have gotten through the pandemic is being able to have a place where they know that people have already paid for their produce so they can just kind of rely on them and not worry about um, other um, factors that go into, you know, taking fruit to the markets and all that stuff. So, All right. Nice. Thank you for sharing. So where can someone go to learn more about To Your Farms? I have a Facebook page and I also have an Instagram page. They're both under Julia Farm. And I also have a website that you can go check out. And if you have any comments or questions, there's like a, um, a place where you can email me uh, from the website. All right, perfect. Thank you so much, Raina, for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we'll chat with Dior Greenwood. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix, and in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations, boosters, and testings are available at both locations for anyone over the age of five. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm guest host Sabrina Avila. On the phone with me is Dior Greenwood, a Navajo multidisciplinary artist, skateboard instructor, and youth advocate. Welcome to our show, Dior. Good morning, Yate. So do you care to share with us a little bit about yourself? I would. I, I would like to introduce myself in Navajo. Um, Yat a she your green radiant chair, Torich eat me richly, my idish gave me bushes tree, a she he does she che, Delagana eda chanella, a chehotsoi, shehoan. Yeah, I am 26 years old. I make skateboards, I teach skateboarding, um, I've been around flute making ever since I was a child, and now. Um, that family business has passed over to me and my elder brother, and we are just doing our best to involve the youth in everything that we see for the future. Great. Multi-talented. We love it. So can you please tell us about your journey as an artist? I was born and raised around artists myself, and in a way, entrepreneurs. I had aunts and moms and uncles who always made crafts and went out and sold them. And, uh, you know, I was around that all the time as a child and just seeing that and feeling that confidence that my family gave to me when they gave me items to sell as a child. And then, you know, into my teenage years, um, thinking of my own things to sell and, you know, going out there and getting it done. And now, I didn't see as a kid how all of that would play into my adult life. And as an adult now, I'm very, very thankful that 
I was around such inspiration because now I'm running my own business and being my own boss, and it's uh, very great. So can you tell us what kind of art do you create? I was introduced to sewing art uh, for power regalia at a young age and then beadwork and then jewelry making. Um, And shortly after that, uh, my uncle gave me my first wood burner and he showed me that, you know, using a wood burner, we can create design work on our flutes. So I got into flute making before I got into skateboard making, but after I had moved from the Navajo Nation to Phoenix, Arizona, um, I started getting into skateboarding because there was pavement everywhere. So once I got into skateboarding, I wanted, you know, I learned how to ride the skateboard, then I learned how to start doing tricks, then I wanted to take it into competition. And then after competition, I was like, okay, well, maybe I want a pretty skateboard, something that speaks to me. So I started designing my own boards, my own grip tapes. And then finally, I decided, well, like, the last step of skateboarding is to learn how to make it and, you know, what goes into making a skateboard. So that's the step on that now and figuring out um, how I can bring you know, that skill set to my community, my people, and especially the youth. So how did you get interested in skateboarding? I know that you said you saw a bunch of cement around, and um, were you watching people skateboard, or were you just like, I'm going to try this? I watched my younger brother get a skateboard for Christmas. My grandfather got him a board from Walmart with uh, plastic trucks, and my little brother rode it as if it was a professional skateboard. He got so immersed into it and made it look extremely fun that anytime he left his skateboard to go somewhere, I would sneak off with his board and go behind my house and onto the little concrete patch. And I would kind of like learn how to fall there and goof around. And then uh, kind of it never really went anywhere from there up until I moved from the Navajo Nation to Phoenix. And when I got to Phoenix, I didn't have a car. Um, but I needed to get to work, I needed to get to school and, you know, get laundry done and get groceries. So I figured, okay, it's time to get a skateboard out. And, you know, that was my four set of wheels and I made it work. I learned how to to skateboard, um, skating on the streets and skating my groceries home and um, five gallon water containers on top of my skateboard, balancing it and skating it a couple miles back. Um, back and forth from college to work. And um, so, yeah, I learned how to use a skateboard out of necessity and out of pure survival. And then after that, um, you know, after I got very good at navigating the cracks and the cracks in the road and the potholes, and I learned how to get around that stuff, I felt confident enough to be like, okay, well, maybe I can go into a skate park. So I went into a skate park and I was blown away by how even the the concrete was, um, how there was inclines set for skateboarding. And it just, um, it was so different than street skateboarding. Street skateboarding was just unpredictable and rough and like so gnarly that when I got into the skate park, it was like like a safe haven. It was a dream just being able to go in with predictability and know that, you know, everything's going to be nice and smooth and set for you. And it was a, it was a game changer, I would say. So sounds like you went through a lot of skateboards. And um, so let's talk a little bit about your competitions and team skateboarding. Uh, Yeah. So I moved to Phoenix and as I started going to more and more skate parks, I found a you know like a community of female skateboarders called original betty skateboards um the lady who started that is patty mcgee she's a famous skateboarder from back in the day she used to do handstands and you know i didn't realize how legendary she was until later in my life however they were my first sponsors and they gave me skateboards and they kept a board underneath my feet because i was 
17, 18, um, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and buying skateboards was kind of added a question. So when they had sponsored me, it was, it definitely gave me the confidence to like want to try tricks and actually damage my skateboard, knowing that I had that support, that they would be there to give me, you know, the skateboards and get me to the contest. And, and into this day, the original Betty Skateboards is not a company now. Um, she retired. However, they gave me the sense of what a skateboard company and skateboard sponsors should do for you. So they they really laid the uh, the foundation for other sponsors, my future sponsors, and a pretty good high bar to step up to. That's encouraging to know that you had such a strong community around you that supported you through this. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your skateboard designs and what your art represents. I got. My skateboard design work uh, all started definitely when I was still living on the Navajo Nation. Um, I got a pack of skateboards from um, an adoptive mom of mine. She noticed that I really liked designing skateboards and spray painting. So she bought me a pack of skateboards. I started just spray painting alone. There was no wood burning then. Um, however, I was wood burning on flutes, but I didn't put the correlation together yet. I sold my first batch of skateboards at the uh, Navajo Free Market swap meet. And uh, from there, I just held on to it as I went into the city life. And when I got to the city, I was just, there were so many new things happening and things I haven't seen in my life before. And, you know, I needed like a grounding. So I needed something to bring me back to my peace, which was, you know, being home, but home was six hours away. So, you know, I started just sitting in my room and designing boards that made me feel closer to home and closer to my great grandparents. And uh, so that's where all that traditional design work came was me just uh, craving to be home, but I couldn't be. So can you talk to us about what pyrography is am i saying it right yes so pyro is fire and graphos um is to write so the word pyrography together is and translates to uh, writing with fire um very unique story about that is my late uncle um, virgil teller he gave me my first wood burner to curve me burning stuff because my uncle Virgil used to make flutes, cedar flutes, he would have all this excess cutoffs and wood and gasoline around the house to power generators. And so as a kid, you know, on the weekends, I would go hang out there, watch him make flutes, but I would also sneak off with like all the extra excess wood to cut off and make little bonfires. Eventually my bonfires got larger and larger and he started getting more and more worried. And he told my mom, hey, you you know, you got to curve that because, you know, her bonfires aren't just cute little ones no more. They're starting to get pretty big. And then one day I came back from school and I went over on the weekend and he had a wood burner going. And he told me to write my name that he drew a flower and he had me wood burn the flower. And then he's like, no, that's your wood burner. That, that's yours. And I don't want you to be burning anything around my house anymore. <laughs> you can burn things without being destructive. So that that is your wood burner. Take it with you. And, you know, he allowed me to help him on the weekends and burn the flute design work into the flute. And uh, it, I think that created the patience I have when I do my boards now. Because when when you're wood burning on cedar wood, you have to pay attention to how hot your wood burning tips are. And if you don't pay attention, you can burn right through the flute. So, uh, yeah, just the patience was gathered ever since I was 11 years old. It's a, the patience is there when it comes to doing, sitting down and doing hours long work on my skateboards. So um, let's talk a little bit more about the aromatic cedar flutes. Do you play at all? I do, yes, I do play. I do play the flutes that my 
elder brother and I make, um, we have to test them to make sure they are playable and sound great and, you know, consistent for our customers because the music that comes out of it is medicine. So we, you know, we do our best to make sure that everyone gets something that is quality and that represents the Navajo people and is always consistent and, uh, you know, just trying to pay their respects to everybody who's made flutes and to all the future flute makers as well. Do you have anything that you'd like to play for us today? I would. I definitely would. I have a short flute song. Um, everything is very free. Uh, not freehand, but free-minded. So it's not pre-recorded. Everything that is recorded um, is definitely always altered. I don't think I have a set song that I can play over and over. So everything is very uh, in the moment. Thank you so much for playing for us. It sounded great. So um, can you tell us how you incorporate Navajo teachings into your skateboards and artwork? I mean, the way I really think about woodworking and Navajo people is, you know, we've always constructed things from nature. We've constructed our hosans and our shade homes, and we've always just given thanks to everything we use. So when it comes time to making skateboards, um, you know, the ordering process of getting the wood laminate shipped over from the East Coast. And when they come here, you know, I'm praying over the wood that I use, the glue that I use, and uh, the supplies I take to actually mold the skateboard into a skateboard. So, you know, it, it all starts there. And then when it comes to actually making and shaping the skateboard, you know, before you cut anything, you explain to the to the wood, you know, like, I don't mean to do this in a, in a negative way, but the way I'm going to cut you is going to help other people. And so, yeah, you know, so I take those teachings that I was taught as a young kid to, you know, be appreciative of the life that you're using, whether it's just an object or not, it's, it's been alive. So I definitely take those teachings and, you know, put them into modern day, even though nobody sees it, you know, but I, I personally think that people feel it when uh, they get my artwork and they skate my artwork. I feel like uh, there's an energy stored in there. So, <laughs> um, and that's just the making process. That's not even the designing process. Um the designing process is, to me, it's very similar to, you know, the Navajo weavers. So when the Navajo weavers set up their loom, they have an idea of what their design is going to be. They set their loom up, and as they're setting the loom up, you know, the, their design changes. But it's never something that is, like, a pre-designed, like, on paper. And I've been asked by people, like, can you do a design on paper and then show it to me? And then I'll tell you if I like it or not. And I'm like, that's kind of impossible for me because, like, I don't design on paper. It's just, like, in the moment, you know, when I graph the board and my board is sitting there with my pencil markings and my graph, every board just speaks as what it wants to be. And it's, like, never never predestined it's always in the moment and I read something a long time ago and recent 
that that's the way Navajo weavers do it. They they never draw their designs beforehand. They don't keep like a log of designs that they have. Everything is like very heartfelt and in the moment. Yeah, when I do my design work on the skateboards, it just uh, it's a very crazy feeling because it's almost like my hands know what to do and my mind just allows my hands to do the work. I would like to think that that the uh, artwork and skill set that I have is not mine, but it belongs to the Navajo people as a whole. So I believe, you know, there's some kind of ancestral power that helps me create this, you know, these designs. We know that your artwork is currently at Sky Harbor Airport. Can you please tell us about the exhibition? Uh, the exhibition is in Terminal 3 of the airport on the second story there. Uh, it's in the public area, so anyone can go and view it. It'll be on display until, I believe, April of this year, 2022. And uh, I have a regular shape skateboard, a longboard skateboard, a cruiser, um, you know, like pretty much a, like a good homage to every scene of skateboarding that there was. So there's skateboards of all shapes and sizes there. There's skateboard from other native artists in Arizona and other artists in Arizona. So it's a, it's a very good mix of design work that is currently being shown at the Sky Harbor Airport Museum. That's great to hear. So where can someone go to learn more about your skateboards or if they want to contact you to find out exactly where in the airport your exhibition is? How do we find you? Uh, yes. So I do have a website. It is DiorGreenwood.com, as well as my Instagram is at Woodburn Skateboard. Uh, my email is diorgreenwood.info at gmail.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Dior. Thank you, and I uh, look forward to future talks. Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, which is produced through a partnership between Native Health and Radio Phoenix. Our sound engineer is Javier Quiroga, and the executive producer is Susan Levy. We hope you'll listen again next week. If you have any questions, please email us at nativetalkaz at radiophoenix.org.